0: Okay, everybody, welcome to episode 5555 of the Pushing Rubber podcast. My name is Adam Piggott, and coming to you here from the cloudy, overcast, and windswept fields of Western Holland. I bought a different Dutch beer today. I'm trying out all the Dutch beers, and this one is called Brower's. Premium Pilsner, it's um, in an attractive blue and light grey can, Um, it's got a thing on here, Dutch beer, Silver Medal 2017, Um, and it tastes like um, uh, you're making love in a canoe, which is fucking close to water. So not impressed because I bought six of them. Whew. So I'm going to have to drink all six. Oh, I might just keep them in the back of the fridge and uh, give them to uh, guests that I don't like. So if you come around to my place and I give you one of those, <laughs> you know what's going on there. Um, today I uh, today's Wednesday, so Wednesday is of course. Gym day. Go to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I'm back into it after my 10 days off. Lost about... Yeah, lost a bit. 46, I am. I turned 46 recently. This month, actually. Um, 4'6". It's amazing how much strength you lose in 10 days when you're 46. It's a bit disappointing. Uh, But... I'm probably in the best shape of my life at the moment, uh, which is saying something, considering I used to raft full-time for a living. Um, but uh, good day at the gym. Good day. Pumped it out. Really hit it. Uh, squats, bench press, and the bent-over row, barbell row things. I can't remember. It's mostly your triceps and back and biceps and stuff like that. But it was good. Good sesh. Really good session, actually. I wanna, I noticed uh, there were a few people down there. I noticed um, listening to music while you're working out. Now, obviously, there's music going on in the background in the gym itself. And today it was, today it was piss poor. To be honest with you, they really haven't got. Sometimes it's good down there. What you, really want, what you really want is something with a good beat that's not obtrusive. So some good deep house, something like that. It's perfect when you're working out, I find, in the background somewhere. Um, what did they have on today? They had, uh, uh, what's that uh, awful Irish singer's name from like 40 years ago who only did like uh, one or two songs? And he—he must have. He's probably been playing the same songs at concerts for the last forty years. God, that'd be brain dead annoying, wouldn't it? I have to go sit up here, and his name escapes me right now. Um, but uh, so that's no use to you at all, is it? Because I I haven't told you what the music was. It was not workout music. It was not good. But uh, the point I want to make. This is gonna bug me now that I right on the tip of my tongue. Tar- I mean, it's right there, it's right there, and I just can't reach for it. Oh God damn it! All right, let's do it. Let's let's hit uh, a search engine here. Irish singer, male. This this might help me. There we go. There's no one there that even no, it's not Berg Who's Phil Linett? 1949 to here we go. Oh there's too many of them. How many singers? Alright, let's let's do a different search. Um Irish, songwriter, male, What's all the same ones. Um, Peter. category, Irish singer, song, God, I hope he is Irish, because I'm pretty sure he is. I'm tempted just to start this podcast all over again, because this is just absolutely, he's got that terrible voice, the terrible voice. And he just sings the same song over and over and over again. Nineteen uh, seventies. It's probably seventies. Um, all right. Top ten greatest Irish singer songwriters. I didn't even know there were ten. He's. They gotta have him in here. Oh, come on, please. It's, it's... Oh. Who the fuck's Pete sent John? Who the who the hell are these people? I, I just, uh... Ah. Uh. Album of Irish show bands from the 70s. Is this going to help me? This isn't going to help me at all. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have to come back to this. Um, um I really am gonna to have to come back to this because even though I'm still obviously looking right now. Um uh, Van Morrison Fucking oh, thank you. Fucking they had Van Mor was, was it was it was that worth all? W were, were some of you listening to that going just screaming out loud at the podcast? at your own whatever you listen to this ongoing it's Van Morrison you stupid cunt yes. well, that's what I had to listen to that song whatever he, I'm not even going to work it out you know what I mean and he ever had one song that's what I had to work out to that was a bit depressing it was still a good workout though <clears throat> good workout is when you absolutely explode the weights up like, you're not just lifting them you're exploding them, or down, as in the case may be, whatever you might be doing. No, it's always up. It was today, anyway. Because you've got to go up on the squat, up on the bench press, and definitely up on the bent-over barbell row thing, whatever it's called. I was smashing it up. And I noticed this, uh, this guy next to me, young guy, pudgy, overweight, hitting the gym, which I uh, admire and uh um extraordinarily positive towards someone doing that in that physical condition um listening to music on headphones like earphones you know, a little iPod or something like that while you're working out i i don't think that's a good idea i really don't i think that's a bad idea because if you if you're working out properly but like first of all when you work out you finish a set you should be gasping for breath. It's a workout, yeah? <laughs> you, should be, you should be worked out. Yeah. If you can finish a set and you just stand there and go, oh, yeah, man, that was a good one. Well, no, it wasn't a good one, was it? You're not gasping for breath like a deep-sea diver just come to the surface. So... You need to be better to concentrate to do that. Now it's okay to have music in the background, but if you've got if you've got earphones stuck in your ears and the music blaring there, well, that's that's got to serve as as a as quite a substantial quite a substantial distraction, I imagine. I mean, like when Roger Federer goes out and plays a tennis match, a professional tennis match, he hasn't got earphones stuck in his ears. He's not listening to tunes, is he? You know he's concentrating on what he's doing. Even when these guys practice, well, they're just on the practice court, talk, talk, talk. They're doing the same moves over and over and over again. They're not listening to music. They haven't got headphones on, earphones. What if you call them? This is carrying over from the earphone thing theme of last week's podcast. Um, so. What's it doing to your uh, your concentration in the gym? You sh- you shouldn't be li- listening to, to music like that. I think that's... You should be concentrating 100% on what you're doing. You know, is my form correct? Is my technique correct? Like today, on the squat, I have this tendency when I've got a very heavy squat weight going, which I do for me. I'm not going to tell you what, what it is because you will just all laugh. My legs aren't great because I neglected them in weights for over 30 years and as a rafting guide it's all upper body 15 years of that so it's it's very unbalanced so i've i've chained myself to that squat rack for the last was well, over a year now that i've been doing i've been doing squats uh three times a week uh, religiously um and i'm starting to see some gains but anyway when I' I'm, when, I'm, when I'm going down, I sometimes have, have a tendency to lean a little bit too far forward, which can then uh, I can overbalance slightly, which de- then affects pushing the weight up. So I have to really concentrate to make sure that the weight's weight's going down the right way. Um, the same, like on the bench press today, I have to really concentrate that I'm arching my back, keeping my feet on the floor, uh, breathing out correctly. Uh, using the correct, just just everything's working. is it? And 100% concentration on getting the weight up because there's a difference between just lifting the weight up and off your chest and up it goes, or on the bench press, okay, and and smashing it up, like really exploding out um, and giving it everything that you have. And you can only do that if you've got 100% concentration. So having um, Van Morrison going at 10 decibels in your ears, I, I don't... I, it, yeah, and if you don't need to concentrate, it means the weight's not heavy enough, doesn't it? You're You're doing it right, so, so there was you know a young fat guy, uh, very overweight. Uh, yeah, no, he wasn't a beast, but he was you know pudgy for sure, uh, doing his bit in the gym to try and you know get better. And then he's he's got the earphones in. And it's just like, ah, oh. I'm not saying anything. I, I very rarely. I probably. Probably, oh, i very rarely say anything to anyone in the gym, but I tell you what, I really notice, I really notice, um, so many people doing it wrong. And of course, of course, the gym's on three levels, so they've got the bottom level, which all the staff hang out. <laughs> let's see. The second level is most of the weight machines, or the weight free weights are. And the staff aren't there. And then the top level is all like the aerobics courses, whatever they do. Stupid fucking courses. That's for all the middle aged uh up in middle age women go um of course the stuff what is it with gym staff always being behind the desk on a computer what is that what what what, what do you need to be seeing on the computer what, what do you need to be doing what 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 do you need to be checking yeah it just seems really ridiculous i'd like to open my own gym i've always wanted to open my own gym If I was going to open my own gym, it'd be called Adam's Lifting Gym because it'd be a lifting gym. There'd be no, there'd be no, there'd be no, no classes. Full stop. Absolutely no classes. No aerobics. That no, no, that that'll get rid of, that'll get rid of, all of the unattractive women, right there, uh, and most of the women anyway. Just a serious lifting gym. One big room. One level. Lots of squat racks, lots of them. Like at least, well, I don't know for the size of the gym, it's weird out, but oh, five or six. You know, good quality bars, good quality weights. No machines, none of this. these machines. It'll all be all free weights, dumbbells, barbells, and lots of them. Uh, lots of chalk on the premises. Um, I'd stick down my uh, 1970s Bang and Olivson turntable and have seriously good house tunes going at all times um there'd be no there'd be no saunas or anything like that It's it's just you're coming there to lift weights and smash them out and there'd be no staff allowed to sit behind a desk on the computer while um during opening hours if, if, if there needs to be any administration work done, then you can do that after hours. So, well, maybe there'd be like a room at the back, which is the admin room, and you're only allowed to go in there if you're specifically doing ad, admin. The whole point is the staff would have to be out on the floor circulating. Um, uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how many gyms I've been to where there's been like four or five staff clustered around around a computer, a couple of computers, and then they're on their phones, and I go over and I'm like, and I'm out there and I'm really struggling maybe with a with bench press and no one's spotting me. Um, I don't even, it's just like, all, what are you there for? Can you come over and spot me? See what's going on? And how can staff be there on the gym floor and people are so obviously got such terrible technique on whatever exercise they're doing and not say anything? What are you there for? 'Cause you can just right, we'll just I'll just buy a squat rack and do it at home. Adams lifting gym. That's what I do. Groovy tunes, great lifting equipment. Um hardly any chicks. The only chicks that want to be there would be chicks who are into lifting. And they generally tend to be cool. Strength training. Chicks who understand that. They might even make hot chick of the week, you never know. Um, and help from staff, staff circulating on the floor, not bothering you. There's a difference between helping you out and being arrogant fucks. And that's if, if I was gonna train staff, that'd be the, the, the line that i be really, really looking at. You're there to support uh, the members who are coming to the gym. So if they need a spot, if they're doing something technically incorrect, Maybe uh, you can come over and say, What why don't I film you right now? Because you're not doing it right and let's just film this and then I can point out to you exactly what you're doing wrong. Because most people's initial reaction when someone comes up to help them is, Yeah, I know, I know, yeah, I know, I know. And it's obviously well you don't because I've been watching you do it wrong for the last ten or twenty or thirty reps. So you don't know. But this is this is this is a uh, instinctive, you know. Reaction that people put up just to protect themselves because they don't want to be wrong. You know, it's a male thing. It's common. Chicks do it too. Chicks do it too. The old, I know, I know, I know stuff, but not nearly as much as men. When I was uh, when I was teaching courses like underwater helicopter escape training uh, for the offshore oil and gas industry, in general, chicks were easier to train than men. If there were women and if there was scared women, like a scared man and a scared woman, the scared woman a hundred times worse. It just you just could not reason with her. It's just completely emotional. Whereas the men, you had to just get through their logical stuff. I'm gonna hit you here logically. I remember I remember one guy I was training, uh, and he was an engineer. And engineers were a pain in the ass because they they get all technical and they focus on the wrong stuff. So what I would do is i train in a way to get them through the day successfully, but also to try so they could, they retain long-term knowledge. Because this is what you want, you know. We're training you to get out of a helicopter that's gone into the ocean and flipped upside down. And you might have done the, you might, that might happen to you three years after you've done the course. So it has to be instinctive long-term memory retention. So with guys, there's one guy I remember, and he was like, and I could see we'd done the underwater drills, and he'd failed horribly and come up, you know, just complete panic and rah, rah, rah. And then he's sitting there to do the next drill, and I could see him. He, he was just like, he was literally almost talking to himself. And he was, he was just sitting in the seat, and his hands were moving back and forth, spinning around. And I could see what he was trying to do. He was trying to visualise himself upside down and where... And then where the window would be, because you get disorientated. Left is right, right is left, up is down, blah, 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 blah. It's all back to front. That's why getting out of something upside down is so hard when you're strapped into your seat. Yeah? You're hanging upside down, strapped inside. I could see what he was doing. And I said, look, I, I, I grabbed him and I said, look, I haven't, I haven't taught you how to, how to orientate yourself underwater as regards to what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right. I haven't taught that to you. What I've taught to you, is how to find the window from the upside down position and then exit successfully from the aircraft and as soon as I said that bang he got it and he was fine for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the course did it no problem 100% women though when women are panicking oh man this it's almost it's almost impossible it's almost impossible you have to take a completely different approach uh, what I call the warm, fuzzy approach. You have to get it really warm, really emotional. It's gonna be okay. I'm there for you. Nothing bad will happen. You can do this, blah 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 blah. You never do that with guys. You do that with guys and they'd be like, that'd be well, you just wouldn't do it. Would you? You wouldn't do it. Even if they were a fag, you wouldn't do it. Especially if they were a fag, you wouldn't do it. Um but as regards to the Generally, if they're not panicky, women tend to be better than men on a course like that. and I spoke to a guy who taught uh, um, defensive driving like you know aggressive you know controlling you know drifting and spins and all that sort of stuff in a car and he, 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 he had the same, the same uh, take take out as me it was absolutely the women the women at general are easier to train because women admit when they don't some, know something, Yep, I don't know it. I'm here to learn. Give me all of your information. That's what they. That's what they basically. That's the approach they take. You give it to them, and they take it. So they're a blank slate, and they're happy to admit they're a blank slate. They're not. They're not ego invested in in protecting the fact that they don't know something. Whereas men are generally completely opposite. So they're more insecure in that situation, especially you've got a, a guy teaching the course who's confident, self assured that. It gets it gets it gets tricky for them, and so they turn off. They kind of switch off and start not listening as much. Because yeah, yeah, I know, mate. Yeah, I know. Oh, really? You know, you've you've done this upside down helicopter underwater training escape training before. You 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 know? Okay. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Well, fine. Let's see how you go. Of course, I never did that because it'd be like, no, I'm not. Because I'm gonna have to pull your ass out when you when you're close to drowning. But yeah, interesting. Interesting way of approaching it. But anyway, that'll be Adam's Lifting Gym. Adam's Lifting Gym. It'll be an an attractive room. Got some mirrors. Wooden floor. Um, But also good pads to protect the floor from the weights. But also you don't want the pads too springy. You don't want to have, when you're trying to, you know, get out on a squat, the last thing you want is all this rubber underneath your feet, which is causing you to bounce. You don't want that. You want to be straight up off the floor. So that'd be uh, that'd be my thing. I don't know. Would you Would you join Adam's Lifting Gym? Adam's Lifting Gym, brought to you by the good time, great taste of fish. Okay. Uh, the meat of the post, the meat of the podcast, the main part, main course. I want to talk about a couple of books. Um, don't worry. These are not going to be book reviews. Uh, they're just a couple of little snippets. Um, from some books that I read recently that I thought I thought were really interesting. But I wanted to talk about them on a podcast as opposed to writing an article about it because if I was going to write a, an article about it, it would, just, it would just be long. Whereas you chat about it and it's a lot easier and this sort of thing to do. So the first one I want to talk about is um, a book by John Lee Carre. Uh, I used to thought, think that were angers when I was there. I thought it was pronounced John Le Carre. Le Carre, that's Caray. Um, it, uh It's a new book, came out last year. Um, his actual name is David Cornwall, by the way, which is not nearly as exciting as John Le Carre. Obviously, Spy writer wrote uh, *Ticket Tailor Soldier Spy. The Spy came in from the cold, um, you know, a whole bunch of books. It's lots of Um, and this is, uh, his memoir, Stories from My Life. It's called The Pigeon Tunnel. Uh, Excellent book. Excellent book. Now, I came late to John le Carré. Um, I bought a book of his when I was in Italy years ago. I got it here now. I keep all my books. Two thousand and three, this was published. So that was probably a, probably around two thousand and five. I bought it. It was called Absolute Friends. So this is one of one of his more recent. Keep in mind that his major works were written in the sixties and seventies when he really made his reputation. Um, I think his first book was like nineteen sixty two or something like that. I can't remember. Um, what are his really good books? Spy came from in from the cold. You've got all, all the George Smiley novels, so Tinker Taylor, the Honorable Schoolboy, Smiley's People, um, uh, Looking Glass War. I think was a was that one, and then you get later ones like the Taylor of Panama that was filmed, um, Constant Gardener, those sort of things, the Russia House. Um, so I came in. My first taste of John le Carré was Absolute Friends. And I didn't even finish it. I think I got about 60 pages in and I was like... And this is this was when I was, was in Italy when I couldn't get hold of many books in English. Because Amazon wasn't around back then. And I couldn't finish it. It was just Absolute Shit. Absolute Friends, Absolute Shit. I haven't gone back to it, I haven't tried. So that was my first introduction to John le Carré. And so I didn't read any John le Carré, I just... And it was only a couple of years ago that I um maybe maybe three years ago, I don't know, not important. I picked up Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy after watching the really great Gary Oldman uh film of it, which is a great film. I've seen that film many times. If I really like a film, I tend to watch it again and again and again and again. Um and so I read Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, and it blew me away, and the character of George Smiley blew me away, and then I if you're gonna if you're gonna read an author with a big reputation, read his books first that made his big reputation. Don't read the stuff forty years later that he's doing because he figures he has to write something. As was the case with Absolute Friends, I just didn't like it at all. Um, so there's there's a takeout already, folks there so yeah i've read so now i've read i think i've read his entire catalogue from the 60s and 70s and early 80s i tried the Taylor of panama one i think he wrote that in the mid 90s can't remember and once again i think i got about four or five chapters in and I, I just couldn't do it so his early stuff his early to mid stuff fantastic stuff his later stuff just i just i don't maybe you like it i i, I just don't don't like it at all He lost it But this book Written last year Is his memoir a story from my life And it's It's excellent Really Very very um, Entertaining Very uh, Informative Very laid back Very English Droll So I want to read to you A little tiny section Don't worry It's only tiny But It uh, Came It's in a A section Called The Wrong Horse's Mouth Where Right at the end of it he went to uh, went to a dinner with Margaret Thatcher when she was prime minister. A small dinner uh, at Ten Downing Street. Um, he was he was a guest for some reason. And he, it's a difficult kind of evening for him. Is it, he describes a scene where Thatcher asks me if he has anything that he wishes to say to her. So I'll read from it now. But lately, it occurred to me that I had indeed something to say to her, if badly. Having recently returned from South Lebanon, I felt obliged to plead the cause of stateless Palestinians. Lubbers, listened. Lubbers was, uh, uh, who was he? Dutch Prime Minister Rud Lubbers was there as well. The gentleman from the industrial north listened, but Mrs Thatcher listened more attentively than all of them, and with no sign of the impatience of which she was frequently accused. Even when I had stumbled to the end of my aria, she went on listening. Before delivering delivering herself of her response, now this this is so this is me talking again, not quoting. This is her response. Uh, it's like one one tiny paragraph I'm about to read to you now, and I just think it's I think it's so great. So here's what she said. This is this is Prime Minister Thatcher, and I'm not going to do a Prime Minister Thatcher voice. I am tempted now to do a Prime Minister Thatcher voice. No, I'm not going to do it. Don't give me sob... No, I can't do it, I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give me sob stories, she ordered me with sudden vehemence, striking the key words for emphasis. Every day, people appeal to my emotions. You can't govern that way. It simply isn't fair. Now, if you want to look at the major problems with, say, Australian politics, this is an example because I know it so well, today and also in the last couple of decades, I think that little paragraph sums it up. I'll read it again. Don't give me sob stories. Everyday people appeal to my emotions. You can't govern that way. It simply isn't fair. It's so right. As let's 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 take take an example of that. Um, some of you might have been might be familiar. If you're Australians, you're listening. You'll definitely be familiar um, with a situation that happened when uh, left wing government Labor in power about five or six years ago. uh, The ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, Four Corners program, which is like a a investigative journalism program, but uh, let's just say they always have a severe agenda. In this case, their their agenda was to try to uh, influence in a negative way the live cattle export trade uh, in Australia, so most of the most of the far north, if you look at the far north of Australia, Northern Territory, Darwin, that area there, the major uh, one of the major um, export businesses and employment uh, opportunities, particularly for Aboriginals, um, as uh, stockmen, brumbies, that sort of thing, is the the cattle industry, and the, it was a serious industry for the live export industry, particularly to Indonesia. So you've got Indonesia there with 300 million people on Australia's doorstep eating a lot of beef. Um, and we've got all the space there to just ship it straight across to them. So, but of course, activists, animal rights activists, of course, this is bad, blah, blah, blah. You know, cows should just be able to exist and wander around peacefully without being eaten by us. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how much land they think you're going to need in an area the size of Indonesia to feed 300 million people if you're not going to use protein. But anyway, moving right along. So they did a, Four Corners did a hit piece on um, on the live cattle export trays, an hour long. Um, it aired, I think it was on a Monday night. Um, and afterwards it was shown that a lot of it had been doctored, jimmied up, basically... The controversy was over the fact that the slaughterhouses in Indonesia were slaughtering the uh, animals in an inhumane way. I don't know how an animal can be slaughtered in an inhumane way, given that animals aren't humans. Um, but uh, uh, the, a lot of the footage that they had apparently was taken from abattoirs that the Australian cattle exporters weren't using in Indonesia. To say it was a knee-jerk reaction on the part of the government of the day would be putting it mildly. Um, the, The minister responsible for the live export trade, I think it was the resources minister, I could be wrong at the time, literally shut down the entire cattle export industry overnight. Just like that. They just they just shut it down because he'd seen the program. He'd got some calls from frightened from frightened members of parliament or advisors or whatever it is. To say it was an emotional reaction, to say it was a knee-jerk reaction. To say that it I mean I mean, I think at the moment the cattle industry, this is like eight or nine years later, have got a huge court case going. It destroyed their industries overnight. Literally just trying to shut them down. The whole industry they shut down. huge damage to the uh, uh, relationship with Indonesia I mean they've got to feed 300 million people and they've got you know oh we've got all this cattle coming across so it's great no that we just ter- literally turned the tap off overnight it was it was absolutely extraordinary that a government Australian government of the day could just just based on one minister's emotional decision and by the ABC of course it's got taxpayer funded the uh, the, the television station that that uh, that uh, produced the uh, journalistic hit piece. Let's go back to Thatcher. Don't give me sob stories. Everyday people appeal to my emotions. You can't govern that way. It simply isn't fair. I think the, uh, that live uh, cattle export debacle that happened is just a brilliant example of Margaret Thatcher's words there, in in horrible action, um, and if we look at Australian politics, in so many aspects and across across really if we look at Anglo-Saxon cultures, so we've got the Anglo-Saxon group: Australia, Britain, uh, Canada, America, to a lesser extent New Zealand. I don't they don't seem to be afflicted quite so much by the same disease. This appeal to emotions in a governing sense. If we look at the gay marriage. gay marriage debate right now in australia since the plebiscite is going to be voted on by postal vote in the next few weeks i mean you look at the at the no camp and it's it's logic this is the reason for it blah 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 this is why we're against it you look at the yes camp it's 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 almost 100 percent emotions ah feelings 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 trump can trump all logic this is this is to do with the feminization of australia i wrote a piece yesterday on the um uh the gay marriage plebiscite in australia called why the no vote will and must win in the gay marriage plebiscite and i got i got a few comments but i got a comment this morning from brandon if you're listening brandon hello and thank you for your comment thank you everyone for your comments but brandon thank you for your comment because i'm going to be quoting your comment here brandon is a semi-regular commenter uh, on the blog um, he, he, this is So he's living in the UK um, I'll read his comment out When gay marriage was voted on in the UK I watched the debate in the House of Lords on television It was a great debate with the no lobby coming out with thoughtful and logical consequences of a yes vote They explained how uh, there was no mandate, no appetite for change And how detrimental a yes vote would be to the very nature of heterosexual marriage, family and child care law The pro-gay marriage position was basically a civil rights position, so a motion. Both sides sides claimed respect for the other and it was a really good debate, except for the Archbishop of Canterbury who was required to oppose but said as little as possible against. I was against and signed a petition at my church. It passed. Since then, the no-voter and all his arguments have been declared bigoted and homophobic. The gay networks and lobbies are much more robust now across political parties, and in particular, the BBC, which announced ten percent of its senior positions will be filled by LGBT, and half its presenters will be women by twenty twenty. Why do why do you get why do you get preference for a job role? Why do you have quotas based on where you choose to stick your dick? I just I just find that. It's not it's beyond obscene. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Uh, i go on with this comment: The impact in schooling, fostering and adoption, and more recently the transgender and gender fluidity, fluidity outbreak has become a literal, literal deluge. Great comment, Brendan. Um, and um, very uh, very um, timely for what's happening in Australia right now. Um, for those who are unaware, in Australia, I wrote about it in my piece. But in Australia, the the pro gay marriage camp were hugely against any public vote on the matter. They wanted this to be decided by politicians in a parliamentary vote behind closed doors. Now, the reasons they give this, they gave this, was because it would a, a public vote on the on the matter and people being able to express what they thought would be too stressful for the homos. who would kill themselves in large numbers. Of course, that hasn't come to pass. No, no homos have been offing themselves. You'd think that one would have taken one for the team, so to speak. You know, and uh, and uh, because if if one had off themselves because of the debate that's going on right now, then we wouldn't hear the end of it, would we? The other uh, reason that they gave for there should be no public vote on the matter is because that there'd be so much bullying involved of homosexual people. Of course, this was pure projection, as it always is by SJWs. Uh, and uh, once the chips have been down, they've jumped enthusiastically into the entire uh, <laughs> voting uh, debate by bullying nonstop uh, all of their opponents. So at least Brandon, at least in the UK, there was like some semblance of, or uh, uh, well, maybe that was that was their big mistake. You know, that was my, that's, maybe that's the gay gay marriage lobby's big mistake in Australia. They should have looked at. How it got through in Britain. Oh, look, we pretend to have respect for the other side. Everyone will look at it and go, oh, these homos aren't so bad. OK, once we're through, bang. But the Australians, the Australian homo lobby is so arrogant in, in comparison. It was the same with a Republic, re, referendum have a Republic back in the 90s. They're as arrogant as fuck. All of your inner city, lefty, latte sipping assholes. And, of course, the general population out in the suburbs just went, fuck you, we don't want a republic. Stick it up your ass. Anyway, see what happens. So that's uh, John le Carré's The Pigeon Tunnel. And uh, a great, great quote there from Margaret Thatcher. That John le Carré didn't mean it as, as such because he then disparaged it afterwards. I think John le Carré is a bit of a lefty, but I def- definitely enjoyed reading that book. Um, So uh, yeah, emotion, emotion in in politics It's not fair, you can't govern that way It's not possible if you appeal to emotions If you listen to sob stories You can't govern because it's not fair And she was exactly right She was totally right Good on you Margaret Thatcher Gee, you'd be needed right now Okay, second and final book I'll put the links to these books uh, up on my blog if you follow them, you'll go to Amazon, and if you buy it, then I'll get a slight cut, and it won't cost you anything more, and it'll help me out. So there you go. Now, this is the book that I read um, on holiday uh, in Italy re- recently. Uh, it was quite—it's a novel, okay—which is unusual for me, in general. In general, it's unusual that I read uh, probably eighty percent of the stuff I read is nonfiction. Right, so for me to read a novel but I took a novel away it was almost 600 pages it was pretty big it took me uh, I took my time with it. it took me six five days to read it I, I was taking my time uh, it's by a English author called J.G. Farrell who wrote in the 60s and 70s this was published in 1978 he died in uh, uh, about then, I think. Drowned in a fishing accident in County Cork. Hmm. Um, the novel is called The Singapore Grip. Uh, I won't tell you what The Singapore Grip refers to because it's it's a bit of a running joke throughout the book. Um, but it's basically um, centred around a uh, business... Family in Singapore, English family, in the in the top of society, uh, owning a massive massive company with interests across all things, but a lot of interest in rubber, which was a big thing at the time, rubber plantations through Malaysia, uh, in Singapore, just before the just before the Japanese entry into the Second World War in nineteen forty one. So, um, it's probably it's probably starts around. 1939 or 1938 and kind of jumps back and forth a little bit and finishes with the Japanese taking Singapore. And it's a it's a real look at the society at the time, the English society at the time and all the other stratas of society in Singapore, which is a fascinating city. Um, and I've just got a little bit here. There's only one section I want to quote to you, but it it's basically... It's basically how history just always repeats. Because when Farrell wrote this, he's got a, a an afterword at the back of the book that he, he spoke to a lot, he interviewed a lot of people. So this is back in the seventies. So it was only thirty years after the events of the time. He interviewed a lot of people who'd been there. Uh, with you know, had first hand knowledge about what society was like and how it went down once the society started collapse around them with the uh, the Japanese invasion and and the fact that the, the British defense was so inherently flawed for multiple reasons um, and the Singapore at the time was a was a multicultural society so you had Malays remember Singapore was a deserted island when the the, the English claimed it uh, Lord Raffles whatever his name was claimed it I think around 1860 something like that it was a deserted island there was it was it, it was it was littered apparently with the skulls of uh, victims of pirates. It was like their drop-off point, um, but it was completely deserted. and he, And he looked at it and went, "This will be a good spot. Um, apart from all the malaria, this will be a good and the crocodiles. This will be a you know and the horrible, bitey snakes and stuff, uh, and the terrible weather. This would be a good spot if we're looking at a spot between Hong Kong and the China and everything opening up there." If we look at India there, and we look at the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia below us, this is like a central spot where all the boats literally have to come through this area here. If we set up a a shipping and business city at this spot, we're going to kill it. And he was absolutely right. Of course, it attracted heaps and heaps of people um, from the Malay Peninsula, now Malaysia, Chinese, of course. Uh, Indians uh, came across as coolies uh, all sorts of people all all hemmed in together and you had all of these different stratas of society Um, so there's a a character in the book the the main company is owned by two families Uh, one of the families is the main family in the book Uh, the other partner is an older guy who you know, he's, he's getting on and he dies, you know, you know way, way through it. And he sent his son, his only son, away to to boarding school. And the son ends up working for the League of Nations, which was the predecessor of the United Nations. And basically the son's a bit of a, a globalist. He's a bit of a lefty. He's a bit of a capitalism is bad, you know. We have to rise up the workers, Or right? even though he's the son of this this huge business capitalistic guy out in Singapore that if you want to talk about screwing workers and you know, rubber plantations, they, they did a pretty good job of it. So you've got this whole dynamic of it's a, it's a real exploration. And I think Farrell was a definite righty. I mean, he, if he was alive today, I think he'd be a proud member of the alt-right base, but he's very light-handed. He just lets the characters present their views. So he's got a French character as well. He's a a, a French diplomat who, who escaped from uh, from the French colony of Vietnam from the, the Japanese, and now he's penniless in Singapore. This is around nineteen forty one, uh, before the Japanese declared war against against America and Britain, um, and his name is Francois, and Francois is like the reality check. He's the one. He's the one who's who's like, you know, this, this, this kid's, you know, he's, he's in the kids in his 30, you know, late 20s or something, but he's come out to Singapore finally when his dad dies. And the kid's all full of high and mighty United Nations-style notions of globalism and, you know, people will, will all work happily together. And Francois is like, no, they won't. You're full of shit, rah, 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 but in a nice way. Anyway, so the Japanese, so to understand, Singapore sits right at the bottom of the Malay Peninsula. And the Japanese invaded the Malay Peninsula right at the top top right-hand corner where it intersects with Thailand and then made their way down, conquering as they went. So they took Penang, they took Kuala Lumpur um, and they eventually besieged Singapore and history knows what happened. So this is towards the point now of the book, We're, we're, we're more than halfway through and they're getting stories in Singapore of of all the shit that's going down on the Malay Peninsula, of how, of how looting and the complete um, and total uh, failure of society within hours of even the idea that the Japanese are maybe, you know, a couple of days away, and how everyone's turns on each other along racial lines for their own benefit to not only survive but to exploit, attack and settle old differences. And I'm just going to read you a little bit there. So he's got a whole section where, uh, you know, the looting is going on and, the, and it finishes the country, country was foundering in an anarchy. And he's explaining this to the French realist, very world-weary uh, probably my favourite The French guy is probably my favourite character in the book. Um, what do you expect to happen? Asked Dupigny. That's his name, Francois Dupigny. Dismissing the matter with a shrug. I do not see why you should be surprised. Now we've got the young League of Nations idealistic, ideologue talking. But wait, Francois. The laws of a country are merely the wish of people to live in a certain way. Remove the laws for a few days, and you don't expect anarchy to result overnight any more than by abolishing road regulations. You would expect motorists to pick at random which side of the road they would drive on. Laws aren't a means of coercing a population of wild animals, but an agreement between people. Do you see what I mean? But in that case, why has this moral vacuum appeared in the space between the two armies where the rule of law is suspended? It must mean that all these people looting and raping don't consider themselves to belong to our community at all. And that's the money shot. That's the money shot right there, because uh, it was the, the prime minister, the, the, the ruler of Singapore, one of the recent rulers of Singapore, who said that the people vote along racial and cultural lines first. That's where their their loyalties lie. And here we've got a book written in, in the mid-70s saying that and just killing this whole idea of multiculturalism even before it raised its ugly head in the West. Anyway, we've got Francois's response. But exactly, cried Francois, and a flash of lightning lit up his sardonic smile. In a country like Malaya, such an ideal community is impossible. Is impossible because people belong to different races and only have self-interest in common. A brotherhood of man? Rubbish. But let us not complain. Self-interest is the surest source of wealth, as your Mr Smith has so brilliantly demonstrated. Now we've got the young uh, ideologue who responds. Do you really believe, Francois, That until now, our British laws have merely been preventing people here from doing what they would most like to do, namely, attack, rob and rape their neighbours. Come now. Certainly. Today you have the proof. The book is really, really... I really recommend this book. It, It... You've got to learn from history, chaps because history tells you what's going to happen if you've got the brains and the eyes wide open to be able to work it out this book by jg farrell the singapore group here's the the interest or the funny thing i suppose i don't know if, if you're going to find it interesting hopefully you will but the funny thing is this book has sat in my library unread for about 30 years i think i inherited it from my mother's library from some of her books which i appropriated at an early age when i was living home and it has sat in my i've got an extensive library i've got uh, people come over and one of the first things a lot of them do is there's three types of people who come to my house i'd say there's ones who come in and and don't even register the library at all, cause it's downstairs in a lounge room and it's big um and then there are people who come in and then they're like drawn to the library like like flies to honey and i'd be one of those guys if i was uh if I was coming to your house and there was a big library there, then I'd be like, oh, I wouldn't go straight there because that would be rude. But I would be itching to get over there and have a look. I love looking through libraries. Um, they also tell you a lot about the person, but not in not in obvious ways. So, Listen, I've got a lot of books there that, that I didn't agree with, but I need to hear all the opinions yeah, to be able to make up my mind. And then you get the third type of person. They're the type of people who... who uh, Umberto Eco, the Italian writer, described this in one of his... I think it was his memoir, where he had a, a library of several thousand books and people would come over and a certain type of person would look at the library and then say to him, but have you read all of these books? I've had that a few times as well. The books aren't, aren't all there to be read. You're not, you're not putting the books in your library to say, this is what I've read. The books are there to be read, if you understand what I mean. When you're ready to read them. And it might take 30 years, as in the case of this book by J.G. Farrell, a Singapore Grip. If I'd read this, that's the here's the amazing thing. If I'd read this at any time in the last 30 years, up to the last two years, I wouldn't have got it. I wouldn't have understood. I wouldn't have picked up on what he's actually saying in the book that multiculturalism doesn't work that people will always disperse along religious, racial and cultural lines and showing that how it actually happened in Singapore in 1941 and 1942 I would have missed it so that's the amazing thing I, I picked this book up at exactly the right time. Of course, I started reading it on holiday. I took three books on holiday with me, and this was the only one that I read. The other two books that I took with me are also two books from my library that I've never read. Hang on, have I, I've got them here in the room. I've got. Here we go. So these are the other two books I took on holiday with me that have been in my library for a while, but I've never read. Uh, the Leopard by Tomasi di Lampedusa. This is described in certain quarters as uh, possibly the greatest novel of the 20th century. Uh, Italian writer only wrote the one book and died before it was published. I think it was published in 1958. I've started it a few times and I just can't get into it yet. I'm pretty close though. And Kingsley Amos. Kingsley Amos, of course, wrote Lucky Jim. Probably one of the funniest novels ever written um but this is one of his other books the old devils um and i've tried to read this a couple of times and once again i'm just not ready for it yet i'm not going to get out of it yet what i need to maybe in a few years so they'll sit there in my library and they're there waiting for me and often i'll go out and i'll buy books especially at second this is oh that's one of the things i'm really missing this is that's one of the drawbacks of living here in holland there's no second-hand bookstores that I can go to. I love delving around in second-hand bookstores. England is close, so I think I will have to do some research and do maybe once a year just do a book-buying trip and go up, buy 30 or 40 books, just come back, and then they're there, they're ready, they're waiting. And they're waiting to be read uh, when you're ready at the right moment and that's what a library's for that's what a personal is for it's not to say this is what I've read it's stuff it's, it's like the books are cultivating they're like fine wine yeah as you mature as your knowledge gets broader then you become more open to them and then your hand gets attracted to that book just like it happened with the Singapore grip and I grabbed it off the shelves um So, uh, there you go. Okay, shout-outs. Captain Capitalism is on holiday, month-long motorcycle trip across the United States. He's been posting some photos on his blog to make us jealous, which has been working, because I don't have a motorbike at the moment, so thanks a lot, Cappy. Bastard. Um, Captain Capitalism, Aaron Clare, is his name, sponsors this podcast. Um, And... uh, in that regard you need to check out his stuff check out his books he's written a lot of books all around mostly around the economics theme of how not to fuck your life up by by not knowing how to manage your money in various forms um he has a consultancy business called asshole consulting so you can contact him and he will you ask him the question should i study advanced masters of puppetry at university for eighty thousand dollars and then And you send him stuff, you know, because you're on the fence. Should I do this or not? You know, puppetry, it's a big thing. You know, I could do do really well with this. And so Cappy will do his research and put a video up on YouTube. Anonymous, of course. He won't mention your name. um, Where he will give you the hard love. That's why he's an arsehole and he calls it Arsehole Consulting. But he'll tell you what you need to know. Uh, He's a podcast as well. So check out The Good Captain Capitalism. Um, You can check out at my blog, uh, if you're on SoundCloud, um here we've got just there just below my followers you've got website and blog you can follow me on gab so go across there to pushing rubber downhill you can follow the blog you can follow this podcast you can follow me across the road uh you can buy my books pushing rubber downhill um journey to manhood five white water adventures it's the story of how i red-pilled myself that's what it's really about. It's taken me a while to work out what my actual book was about. Yeah, It's the story of how I red-pilled myself before that terminology was even known, before there was even a manosphere, before there was even an internet. It's blue pill to red pill. That's what the book's about. Um, and Run Guts Pull Cones, A rafting Adventure in the Italian Alps, is about once you're red-pilled, how does that work for you? That's what my books are about. Um, if you've read my books, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, if you have read them, leave me a, a review. That'd be great. If you've if you've read my books and left a review, I love you. I love you, but not in a gay homo way, because that'd be gay. Um, this has been fun. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell all the uh, homos out there that you hate. And uh, I'll be back next week with another scintillating and educational episode of the Pushing Rubber Podcast. Bye for now.